0: we are going again chapter by chapter picking highlights and uh, we are already on chapter 13 and it took us 47 weeks 47 messages to get here because we were doing verse by verse and uh, I I should crunch the numbers and see uh, when if we were still doing verse by verse uh, at the pace we were going I wonder when I would be done Uh, probably like uh, five weeks after the rapture came or something I don't know. Anyway, so we are now just going chapter, and you know, one chapter at a time, not covering everything, and uh, just doing highlights. So, in chapter thirteen, we come to a very interesting, actually two, interesting scenarios, um, pictures, metaphors, or parables, you might say. And the first one is is the most unusual. And so I want to back up for a minute and, and talk about why God would do it. But let's just look at what this is first of all that God is asking Jeremiah to do. So look at Jeremiah chapter thirteen, the first five verses, and and if you read through if you read through your Bible like in a year, and you've got like three verses, three chapters from the Old Testament, you might breeze through chapter thirteen and not even realize what the significance, uh, or the um, the radicalness of what God was asking Jeremiah to do. So look at verse 1 through 5. Then saith the Lord unto me, Go and get thee a linen girdle. Now, understand that uh, words have changed. And, um, you know, when people hear this, you you might hear kids starting to giggle and stuff like, I can't believe it's a girdle. You know, that's what women wear. And that's not what he's telling them to do. Uh, And there's all different kinds of... uh, interpretations translations uh, explanations of what this Hebrew word is Uh, but the idea is it's a belt or it's a sash it's probably how I'm going to refer to it most of the time it is um, it's like a cummerbund it's uh, a loincloth it's something uh, actually something the priest would wear around their midsection some people believe it was part of like an undergarment But it was clearly not something, because Jeremiah was not a priest, wasn't the high priest. So, you know, this would be an anomaly to have him wearing this thing, first of all. And listen to what God said, what to do. Again, verse 1, he said, Go and get thee a linen girdle, and put it upon thy loins, and put it not in water. So I got a girdle according to the word of the Lord, or a sash, or, you know, a Cumberbun, if and I hope, don't let the word girdle be a stumbling block to you. Just picture it's a belt or something that goes around the midsection. Uh, It wasn't just something that was for women, but it was something that the linen loincloth or that middle section was something that the high priest and the priest would wear. So he says, uh, verse 3, And the word of the Lord came unto me the second time, saying, Take the girdle that thou hast got, which is upon my loins, and arise. Go to Euphrates and hide it there in a hole of the rock. So I went and hid it by Euphrates as the Lord commanded me. What's he asking him to do? Well, some people have tried to explain away uh, the significance of this because when you realize where the Euphrates is in light of where Jeremiah is, He's asking him uh, to travel, to make make a 700 mile round trip. He would have been gone for at least uh, three months to just travel north and east a little bit. Lo and behold, he was going into Babylonian territory to the Euphrates River and then to take this, this sash, this linen... Uh, belt, loincloth, girdle, and to bury it along the Euphrates under a rock and then come home. Why would God want him to do that? And then after some time, and it doesn't say how long, obviously a significant amount of time expired, he said, okay, now go back. Again, 700 mile round trip, at least three months of just walking, you know, going, and then get this get this sash get this loincloth get this cummerbund, and bring it back and and there is a a picture there's a word picture there's this was going to be an illustration to try to get Israel's attention now i want to talk about the old testament prophet because he was a unique any old testament prophet was a unique character and god uh, in order to get the attention of Judah or Israel, God had them do some very strange things, some very unusual things, some some things that you and I might think, how could the God that I know that loves us, how could He m- make someone do that? So let me just rehearse to you some of the more unusual things. Uh, one of them is... Uh, has to do with Isaiah walking around, uh, this is in Isaiah 20, walking around either naked or uh, underclothed and prophesying for for a certain amount of time. This is in, uh, oh, okay, uh, for almost three years. It was a sign, it's been described as a sign act. And and I don't know if this is, you know, okay, Jeremiah, each day you wake up, you start, you know, Clock in, and you got to either be under underclad or whatever. Some say it's just he was to be barefoot, but that's not unusual. And then to walk around, and and it was to be a message about um, the fate of Egypt and Cush at that time, and perhaps the southern kingdom of Judah at the hands of the Assyrians. So for kind of a strange thing, but there there are stranger. God had Hosea. Pra- one of the, there's two to me that are the most just unusual. And the one that's probably the most maybe would be that he required Hosea to marry a prostitute and then name his children weird names that signified something. And it was all to be a picture of Israel's unfaithfulness and God's faithfulness to them. Something very hard you know, for Hosea to do. Uh, Of course, Jonah, you know, running from the Lord and the the whale, you know, the big, great big fish. Or here's one that I've always marveled over. Ezekiel was required to eat a scroll and then lay on one side for 390 days. I don't know if he punched in in the morning, went to a certain place where everyone could see him, and he just got down on one side, but he did that for 390 days. Can you imagine that? Uh, And then he also had to cook fire over manure. uh, Just, you know, you think, why? Why would God do these things? How about Balaam riding a talking donkey? And um, this, to me, is the hardest one. Uh, When I first read it, God God took the life of Ezekiel's wife. And Ezekiel was challenged, you cannot mourn. And it was going to be a picture. And when you read that, it's in um, Ezekiel chapter 24, verses 15 through 18. It is so matter of fact. It's something like, I forget, I haven't read it in a while, but you know. So I woke up, my wife died, and then just go on. And, and that's, God was using that. Uh, in fact, just to understand this too, when I've read it, I looked at it initially, and I think a lot of people look at it and say, wow, how uncaring is God? That you, you know, your wife's going to die, and you're not allowed to mourn. In fact, you can't put on the mourning clothes, but you have to put on garments of rejoicing. And it was all a word picture. It was an illustration to Israel that, um, in fact, from verse 19 through uh, it's Ezekiel 24, 15 through 18, and God would tell them that the death of Ezekiel's wife was going to prefigure the loss of the temple. The judgment that was coming, which was the delight of the Jewish eye. Uh, in other words, he's likening Ezekiel's wife, who was the delight of his eye. Just an amazing... To me, that's a tough one, but the more I've studied it, the more i realized it is that he wasn't saying that Ezekiel couldn't grieve, but the traditional uh, grieving process of putting on sackcloth and and going through mourning over a certain amount of days with weeping uh, that God was requiring Ezekiel, you're not going to do that. You you can you can grieve for your wife, but you have to put on different garments. And it was it was something that would get their attention. Understand, all these things, Ezekiel, I would have loved, I'm just so curious, especially about Ezekiel laying on his side for 390 days. You know, I, I want to know, did he have to do it for 8 hours a day or 10 hours a day? Or did he get a chance? Did he sleep? I, you know, I just, I want to see the video of that, which of course they don't have that yet. Um, But I think when we get to heaven, we're going to get some answers on some of that stuff. Why would God do that? And now here, you know, Jeremiah is hiding. uh, He's going to go. He has a sash that he has to wear. Can't be washed. And he has to take a months and months journey up to the Euphrates again into the north. where Remember, that's where the Babylon's, where that's the judgment's going to come. It's all a picture. And then after so many days, you got to make that trip again, bring back that garment, and show them how this garment, which was of great value and of significance, because it represented the, the, the high priest would wear it, the priest would wear it. It was supposed to be a crown of glory to, to show a high office. It was one of those things that was set apart, holy unto God. And now it was coming back, back useless, spoiled, ruined. And God was, was doing that. All of this He was doing and all these other things to get their attention. That's all. He wanted to get their attention. Look again, or back up actually, um, as we read verse 6. And it came to pass after many days that the Lord said unto me, Arise, now he'd already made the first trip. He buried the, the sash, the, the the whatever that, that mid-belt was. Arise, go to Euphrates again, and take the girdle from thence which I commanded thee to hide there. And so Ezekiel says, or, uh, Jeremiah says, Why do you want me to do that? No, he didn't question. Then I went to Euphrates and digged and took the girdle from the place uh, where I had it, and behold, the girdle was marred, and it was profitable for nothing. By the way, it's interesting how sometimes people will take the bizarre or the things that are... I want to remind you of a quote that I shared uh, that I just found out about within the last couple of years. I love this quote. It just opens, it presents, it's something that gives us wisdom. Keep this in mind. Remember? The past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. Why is that important? Because too many times, people, historians, will go back and they will judge the past based on our measuring rod for today. Uh, our, and, and this whole cancel culture is part of that. You know, they're, they're looking at the past and trying to... They're looking at it through the lens of today, which is so arrogant, to condemn people for, for and not understanding their time, what the setting was, and 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 just judging them harshly, people will do that. In, you know, on Old Testament history, that things we don't understand, and they they will look at the past again through the lens of today, and it is so unwise, it is so arrogant to do that. Because those people will often be the same ones that if the Lord tarries 100 years, 150 years, and people look back on our generation, they're going to look at us and say, how could you do that? And they don't know the pressures that Christians are under. They don't know the things that are acceptable or legal that should not be. So please keep that in mind. When you look at some of these things, and do not judge God harshly, do not judge God's people harshly. God has given us these things because there's something for, for us to learn if we'll humble ourselves. But here's the key. Pride, we're gonna find out, pride was the thing that God was trying to get their attention for. And he was he went drastic measures were required. Because these people were so arrogant. And God had sent prophets. Jeremiah was just the last of a batch to try to warn them and give them God's perspective. They wanted nothing. They were so arrogant. They had already written Jeremiah off. They had dismissed him just as they would dismiss certain Bible preachers today or, or Bible teachers that teach truth. They just dismiss them. And one of the reasons is for pride. And so sometimes people will um, look at some of these stories and say, oh, well, that never could have happened. For example, here's one. Some think Jeremiah didn't go all the way to the Euphrates. When you think about it, he had to travel 700-mile round trip. It would have taken him months and months. And so they just think, you know what? There was probably a closer river that is being like Euphrates, but much closer water source. Maybe it was it had a similar name. Some people even think that it was merely a prophetic vision. Like, okay, Jeremiah, you're not going to really do this. Don't worry, you're, you're not going to have to travel for three months. But you're going to have to, in a vision, go to the Euphrates and do this, and it's it's going to be this whole thing that it's not really happening. And listen to one. So one one commentator I came across, or it was a quote from another, that brought this out. Here's what this guy said. He said the prophet's journey seems to have been but visional, as was Isaiah's going barefoot, Hosea's marriage with a prostitute, Ezekiel's lying on one side three hundred ninety days. In other words, he's saying these things didn't happen. They were just Visional. What does that mean? You know, one of our one of our principles, as we've been talking about hermeneutics, is this: if the plain sense makes sense, don't try to make any other sense out of it. But at the same time, just because something seems unusual from our perspective in our day, don't start trying to read into it and say, "Well, that can't be." The one I think of always is remember Rahab the harlot. And that she's actually mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 as Rahab the harlot. And I remember one commentator said it couldn't be it could not be that it, and, and there's and he goes into the Hebrew word and says, "You know the word harlot in Hebrew is very similar to a, a a hotel manager, and that's probably what Rahab was. So you know, next time you think of Rahab the hotel manager, you know, wait a minute what about god doing a transforming work anyway that's that's a different story so here folks i'm convinced of it that you know god was it, remember these are unusual things and and don't judge whether it's ezekiel or jonah or some of these things don't just write it off because of the unusualness of the situation understand this was a dire situation for the jews They were in such desperate condition that something needed to get their attention. And so, the Jews require a sign, the Bible says, and God would often give them something very bizarre like this, which would be... Again, it's interesting. Now, we know know what's going to happen. We already know that though Jeremiah would do this, they still would not heed. In fact... Let's see if we can see it because time so slip so slip away here. Um, he says to them. Uh, by the way, there's another. The, I skipped over. There's another story about a, a wine barrel, and um, it, it's 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 kind of has the same. He's getting across two points, and I didn't want to get bogged down in that, but. Um, it's, it's it's at the end of one of these verses here. 12 and 13. 12 and 13. No, 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 I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about um, it was when God said... Uh, da, da, da. Let me just look real quick. Okay. Verse 16. This is kind of the closing verse too. Give glory to the Lord your God because He caused darkness and before your feet stumble upon the dark mountains and while you look for light... He turned it into the shadow of death and make it gross darkness. But if ye will not hear it, my soul shall weep in secret places for your pride. Uh, and there's another place in here where it's where where he talks about them listening. In fact, let me just. Anyway, I'll, I'll get to it, or I might look at it. But if I don't, it's it's a verse that where he says, "Here's, here's what I'm trying to do. I wanted you to be a unique." People, I wanted you to be a light is the idea, but you would not. And so, God wants to get their attention. Charles Spurgeon said this about these unusual things that God does. Uh, he says, Whereas plain words might not have been noticed, this little piece of acting... You know, it's a parable. It's like, okay, you're going to do this thing. It's going to take up three months of your life. You're going to walk this little bit of acting, commanded the attention and excited the curiosity of the people. And he's talking about preachers himself included. He says, "Blame us not if we sometimes dramatize the truth. We must win men's hearts, and to do so, we dare even risk. We are, we dare even run the risk of being called theatrical. You know, in other words, sometimes a preacher will. Just to get attention will do something theatrical. Spurgeon was such a master of words that his theater was in illustrations that he used so perfectly. But this reminded me of, of a story in a, a a preacher who also wrote books. Uh, he wrote a book called The Stress Factors. Stress Fractures. And he just humbly was talking about his own life. He said, I found myself with too many commitments and too few days. I've shared this one other time if it sounds familiar to it to you this was a while back so he said I found myself with too many commitments in too few few days so I got nervous and tense about it I was snapping at my wife and our children choking down my food at mealtimes and feeling irritated at those unexpected interruptions through the day before long things around home started reflecting this pattern of my hurry up lifestyle it had become unbearable for his family I'm, I'm, I'm sure He said, I distinctly remember after supper one evening the words of our young daughter. She wanted to tell me something important that had happened to, to her at school that day. And so she began hurriedly. Daddy, I want to tell you something and I'll tell you really fast. Suddenly, realizing her frustration, I said, honey, you can tell me and you don't have to tell me really fast. Say it slowly. And then he said, I'll never forget her answer. She said, then listen slowly. That's good, you know. Uh, here's a girl who, like, she's, she's caught up. The dad's always busy. And, and you know, she doesn't want to be at an inconvenience to her dad. And so she's like, Dad, I just want to tell you something real quick. Oh, I'll say it real quick. And he's like, honey, 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 just, just settle down. Just tell me what you want to tell me. And, and, you know, what a great dad. But then the dad gets rebuked. All right, Dad, you want me to tell you? You want to listen to me? Then listen carefully. Listen slowly. God is trying to get Israel's attention. And we've already gone through so much. And you've already got... He's one of the last preachers to try to get their attention. But they're so proud and so blind. They've already dismissed Everything out of Jeremiah's mouth, Isaiah. and You know, the first uh, Assyria already came and Israel was already taken into captivity and now Judah's next. And God... And by the way, I I started with this, that we already know what's going to happen. They're not going to listen. But isn't it interesting that God still makes these attempts to get their attention. Now again, God knows the end from the beginning. He could have said, you know what, I'm not going to send Jeremiah. Why Why waste three months of Jeremiah's life to do this? But, and again, we don't know. We know God. We know that sometimes He does things to give us an opportunity to repent. But He also does it so that it will be a witness against us. He would do that for the Jews. He would tell Ezekiel, I'm going to send you to do this and this and this, whether they hear you or not. I want you to be faithful. I want you to preach to them so that they will know a preacher, a prophet was among them. And and I think Jeremiah was the same way. God already knew they they were going to reject it. Then why do these theatrical things? Because God goes to great lengths to get our attention When we desperately need it. I think of America. 170 years ago I believe. Or 160 years. 170 years ago. Our president. Made this speech. On um, April 30th 1863. It was a proclamation. For a national day of fasting. Humiliation and prayer. The president was Abraham Lincoln. Listen to what he said. This, is, this could be said multiple times now about our country, but he said this about America in 1863. We have been the recipient of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved the many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in number, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God we have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us and we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom, wisdom and virtue of our own intoxicated with unbroken success we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace Too proud to pray to God, the God that made us. Man, isn't that profound? He said, it behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power to confess our national sins and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. If that was true then, it is multiple times true now. God... Will He's so long-suffering, He will give opportunities. Clearly, He has given America great opportunities to repent. So let's move on to verse 8. First we had getting their attention, now we have the divine pushback. And here, here's what God was doing. This whole picture of the bring back the garment, it's because it's now useless. Then the word of the Lord came unto me saying, verse 9, Thus saith the Lord, After this manner will I mar the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This evil people which refuse to hear my words, which walk in the imagination of their heart, and walk after other gods to serve them and to worship them, shall even be as this girdle, this this sash, which is good for nothing. For as the girdle cleaveth to the loins of man, so have I caused to cleave unto me the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah, saith the Lord, here it is, this is the verse I was looking for, that they might be unto me for a people, and for a name, and for a praise, and for a glory, but they would not hear. What a rebuke! God says, you cleaved close to me. Um, Verse 11, for as the girdle cleaveth to the loins of man, so have I caused to cleave unto me. He had set apart Israel and Judah, the Jews, Israel, he set them apart to be a unique testimony. And they became marred. God actually says, I marred your pride. And you know, that God has not changed. The Bible tells us over and over again what God thinks about pride. God resists twice in the New Testament. God resists the proud. He gives grace unto the humble, and God still does that. And there's so many verses, I have a whole bunch of verses here about how God is far away from the proud, God resists the proud, God judges the proud, and that's exactly what he was doing. God was taking Judah, and he was this picture of the spoiled garment was a picture of what he was going to do. He was going to ruin their pride, or ruin them because of their pride. And what a picture, what a word picture that there was. Years ago, George Gallup wrote a book. He, you know, He's one of the national pollsters in America that takes the pulse of America. And this is not recent. It's only gotten worse. I want you to listen to what his observation was about America. And by the way, back up for a minute. I'm, I'm reminded of the fact in 1 Peter 2.9... Peter uses this for the New Testament church. He says, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood and holy nation, a peculiar people. These were all things that God said about Israel. Now he's saying to the church that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He wanted that for the Jews. He wanted them to be a light shining on a hill so the world could see it and see Yahweh through them, and because of their pride, you could not see God through these evil people. He wanted them to be a people for His name, for His praise, for His glory, but they would not. And I submit to you today, the church of Jesus Christ is very similar. Listen to what George, George Gallup said in a book called Vital Signs. He said there's, about America, he said there's little difference in ethical behavior between the unchurched or the churched and the unchurched. There's as much pilferage and dishonesty among the churched as the unchurched. And I'm afraid that applies pretty much across the board. Religion per se is not really life changing. People cite it as important, for instance, in overcoming depression, but it doesn't have primacy in determining behavior. Shame on America and those who go to church, those who claim to be God-fearing. That, you know, again, this was a couple decades ago. They're looking, the world's looking. they are seeing the unchurched, the the irreligious, the people without God. They're seeing the Christians, the professing Christians, and they're like, there's no difference. Shame on us. Now look at verse 15. Hear ye and give ear, be not proud. This is the big reason why this illustration trying to get their attention. Be not proud for the Lord has spoken. And by the way, at this point, when you look down at your Bibles, right after it's the Lord has spoken, uh, the rest of this chapter is now a poem. You don't see that in your English Bibles, but in the Hebrew it is set out in poetic form. And we won't go through all the rest of it for time's sake. But look what he says in verse 16. Give glory to the Lord your God before he caused darkness and before your feet stumble upon the dark mountains, and while you look for light, he turn it into the shadow of death and make it gross darkness. You know that is what God is going to do to the proud. He's going to do it, he did it. He would do it to, to Judah through Babylon. He had given this was this was again one more chance. For them to repent. But remember, these people were so proud, so stubborn. They didn't see any dire condition. They they were convinced that Jeremiah had lost his mind. Jeremiah, you can imagine the common, everybody knew that Jeremiah's lost it. That guy's just a lunatic. Don't listen to him. And they had no idea what was ahead. And I can only imagine after they got um, Babylon came and conquered them and brought them into captivity, how they must. In fact, they actually Jeremiah went to captivity, and should have been a lesson learned, but they still would not listen to him. I want to close with this. Yeah, remember a quote I've shared with you twice. Two no, two different quotes, and and this is such an important point that I have wrestled with because over the years. First of all, when God saved me, I remember when, uh, when I first heard the gospel, I thought, I've already got religion. Check. I've got that box checked. And all my friends at the time that were going to this spa where I was hearing the gospel, they're like, why? why? You know, they, if they had religion, they're like, hey, we got religion. We don't need what this, this guy's saying. And I remember I checked that off, but I still listened to him. And after a while, the Lord began to open my eyes and say, Whoa. I'm not this guy's talking about being born again. That's not what I had. I had religion. I thought I was a Christian, but I'm not I've never been born again the way this guy says. And then after God drew me into himself and God saved my soul, my eyes were opened. And I could look back and say, I once was blind, but now I see. But I'm convinced that so many people are in blindness, whether it's for salvation or just truth. And here's, here's the quotes. The nature of deception, remember this, the nature of deception is that you don't know it's happening to you. And then the other one is, the person hardest to convince of the truth is he who thinks he already knows it. And there are so many people that have this attitude, why well, grew up in this religion? This religion's good. And, you know, I don't, why do I need to consider anything else? And they don't realize. that, Because some some of them are so close to Christianity. And they're so close and yet they're so far. There's so many dear friends and, and people that I grew up with in my religion. And I just wish that they could go back and study the Reformation. Not from the writings of the church. Because there's so many writings out there that gives the church a spin on these radical Martin Luther and all these guys. I wish they would stop that and just try to listen to what some of the battle cries were back then about you know, what was wrong. But you see, if you think you're good, and you already think, hey, I've got the truth. Then you're really not motivated to search things out. And that's the way these people were. They were so stubborn. They had already dismissed Jeremiah. He doesn't count. He's an alarmist. You can just I don't know what they, exactly they said, but you can imagine whatever they said like, oh, he's just an alarmist. He's it's Jeremiah, you know, just to appease him. Nobody listened to him. Which meant nobody was listening to God. May you and I not be so stubborn that. We're not willing to step back and say, Lord, show me, because He will. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for this lesson in Jeremiah chapter 13. and Help us to learn from these hard-hearted, evil, stubborn people, these arrogant, proud people that uh, just no matter what crazy or bizarre thing you had the prophet do, they, you, they, just, they wouldn't give you their attention. They wouldn't hear Him out. They wouldn't give real weight to what He was saying. And Lord, if we are that stubborn, if we are that proud in any area of our life, please shake us free so that we might come to the truth and, and be rescued from deception. Father, I pray that You'd open people's eyes to the glorious light of the Gospel. Save souls. And we'll thank you for it. Help us to learn from Jeremiah and this lesson. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.